Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Run and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And we are just going to start, this is our take two, by the way, but we are just going to start um, by talking about something that is really, really interesting to a very small group of people, but I think is also interesting in the larger conversation that we always have about Jesus and reconciliation and healthy and holy multi-ethnic communities. And so we have um, a, a little case study in that that we're going to unpack. Um, and if you are new here, um, Yolando and I both serve um, as part of the Presbyterian Church USA, um, which is a particular branch of the body of Christ. And um, it is you know, every single part of the body of Christ on this side of eternity is both beautiful and flawed. Um, and so we, I think, sometimes tend to be pretty hard on the PCUSA just because you sort of begin to take for granted all that is right about the place where you are and you just are really intimately acquainted with its weaknesses and flaws. And so um, I just want to acknowledge that. Like there, there is a lot that is really beautiful and right about the PCUSA. And, and we can talk about um, what it is like um, to serve in this church, which is um, no worse than any other part of the body of Christ, but it's not better. <laughs> I just want to say that for sure. Um, but it's not worse, but it's not better. Um, and, and you know, our hope is in Jesus, not in the church that we serve um, or the denomination that we serve. So, and we don't even serve the denomination. We serve Jesus. Correct. We just, this is just happens to be the lane where, where he's put us. Um, so on Saturday, we were at something called a presbytery meeting. It was on Zoom. And a presbytery meeting happens once a quarter. And it is a gathering of all of the pastors in a geographical area of Presbyterian churches and also elder representatives from all of those churches. And a conversation for another time is my deep love-hate affair with presbytery meetings because on the one hand I love them because I you get to see colleagues and um I I just like seeing people <laughs> I'm I'm kind of a extrovert people person what? You know, so I really enjoy that um and you know you just I've been in this presbytery for uh whatever for 18 years so um is that right yeah so I you know you know people after all that time um even if you don't see them often you just you know them so they're just people I care about and I'm glad to see them it's also they're deeply frustrating for me because I just have dreams and ideas of how else we could use that time and other ways we could go about coming together and how that could be um equipping local churches in ways that would be really exciting um and I also am really grateful that I have not been called to serve as a mid-council executive, so staying in my lane here. But um, we were at this meeting. It was over Zoom. There was a lot going on, and mostly presbytery meetings are very um, passive. So there's like a designated speaker, and the other, and like 250 people sit there and listen to the designated speaker, and then you take a vote, usually to affirm work that has been done in committee. Um, so that's frustrating to me, but that's another story for another day. But at the end of this particular presbytery meeting, we were considering whether or not our presbytery would basically co-sponsor something called a an overture to a group called the General Assembly, which is the national 
gathering of the church, which meets every two years. Um, and another presbytery had created this overture and they were looking, you need a certain amount of presbyteries to co-sign so that it can get to that national level. So we were considering whether or not we were going to co-sponsor this overture. And I'll, I'll pass the mic to you so that you can explain what it well, is. Well, the next. overture, it was concerning uh, an apology for systemic racism, both in society and in the church. And, and specifically slavery. Correct. Right. Because Correct. I think that was one of the things that people were talking about when we actually started talking about it. So, And, and not f simply for the institution of slavery, but the, um, the legacy, the lasting effects of slavery, again, both in society and in church. And the presbytery that was asking us to co-sign on the overture, um, basically the St. Louis area, done a lot of work in looking at how racism, slavery has had an effect in that part of the country and in that city and in the church in that and area. In our specific Presbyterian USA denomination, even though it didn't go by that name then. Yes. But I, I mean, I really appreciated that they were talking about, you know, hey, here is the history of the first person who started a presbytery in what becomes the United States of America because Presbyterian churches were here before there was a country. Correct. And there are some in our presbytery who pre-exist the country. And they were saying, you know, hey, the first man who started a presbytery here was an enslaver. He enslaved humans. So it's not just, well, there were some white people back then who did bad things, but it was, no, our institution, mm -hmm. that this legacy that we have was completely uh, intertwined and steeped in this huge evil um, systemic abuse of God's creation and our brothers and sisters. And it's not a generic thing. Like this is our particular part. And they did a lot of great historical unpacking. And once you start to see that history, you're faced with a choice. You can ignore it and say, well, it doesn't matter. Or you can lean into it and really begin to wrestle with it and ask, well, what shall we do now? What's, what, what, we, what should we do about this? And what I also really appreciate about this and this conversation is a part of the culture of the PCUSA, which I actually have always not liked. <laughs> I'm on the record long ago is you, you, you can't say like, well, that was a long time ago and we never talk about it because we actually talk about the parts of our Presbyterian history that we're proud of all the time. And I think that our pride is misplaced. But I mean, Presbyterians talk all the time about how many Presbyterian pastors signed the Declaration of Independence and how the United States government is modeled after the polity of the Presbyterian church. So you can't say that part of our current culture isn't constantly talking about the historic American roots of this denomination. So you can't say, well, it's appropriate when we talk about the good stuff, but it's inappropriate to talk about the evil stuff. And Yes, and so we acknowledge that the roots go both ways, for good and for evil. And if you have roots in both kinds of soil, or both kinds of roots, that means... There is fruit mm -hmm. for both good mm -hmm. and ill. Mm -hmm. And 
faithfulness to Jesus says you must deal with the bad fruit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reality is our presbytery in particular and the denomination in general talks a lot about um, how many historically black, historically Asian, you know, um, churches that are um, serving one um, quote minority group or one ethnic population of the church. So we we tend to talk again with a lot of pride about the level of diversity in our denomination, which is super ironic because it's actually very very little. Um, but the denomination as a whole is, I think, like 97% white Mm -hmm. and um, predominantly of a very high economic class. So, but still, there are churches that have served, that are predominantly ethnic groups other than white, and those churches tend to be centered in a lot of ways that, on the one hand, is really beautiful (laughs) And on the other hand, can create an appearance of multi-ethnic um, health that does not actually exist in the denomination. So again, like you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, well, we're the church that, you know, our particular presbytery will talk about how we have more historically black Presbyterian churches than any other presbytery in the country which is true, and then you have to ask, well, where did those churches come from? And they came from after um, emancipation, after a certain amount of time, black Presbyterians got tired of worshiping in the balcony of white Presbyterian churches, and they asked to come out of the balconies, and their brothers and sisters, who were sometimes actually former enslavers or the ancestors of former enslavers, said, no, it's not like that here. And so they left and they started a church and they started churches that mirrored the churches that they knew, which were Presbyterian. So like even the existence of these ethnic majority churches tell the story of how deeply intertwined chattel slavery and the Peace USA have always been. And if you follow... a very simple understanding of the Christian faith. It seems to me that our response should be clear Mm -hmm. because we proclaim a faith that says God in God's great grace became a human being in Jesus Christ to reconcile the world. Mm -hmm. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is so central to our understanding of being reconciled to God, Mm -hmm. that God has, in Jesus Christ, on the cross, done everything necessary for Shalom. Mm -hmm. Our response to that grace is to turn in repentance, to acknowledge wrong, knowing that grace is sufficient. Right. And 
And it is very difficult for me uh, as an African-American person, Christian, and pastor to hear my white Presbyterian family members set aside that very basic understanding mm-hmm. of Christianity. They say, no, 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 we, we don't need to repent. There's nothing to be sorry for. We're not guilty. That has nothing to do with us. Those roots are somehow, we're just not connected to those roots. We, and, and there is no, there is no lasting legacy. fruit yeah. from the legacy of racism and, and, and slavery. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, like the the most straightforward articulation of the gospel from the mouth of Jesus is repent and believe. So you can't believe if you can't repent. Mm. And so if what you're saying is I have nothing to repent of, then you're essentially saying I don't have any sin and I just need to continue as I am because I'm already pleasing and righteous before God. Like it's just not. It it is it is a fundamental misunderstanding of Christian theology. And it is really the problem with, and we've talked about this before, it's the problem with like the Billy Graham individualization of salvation, right? This idea that salvation is just a a discrete individual relationship between me and Jesus. and Just a transaction. And all I need to do is say this prayer, and then all my sins are wiped away, and anything that happened before or in the present or in the future doesn't matter to God and doesn't have to matter to me. And that's just not, that is a popular um, distortion of theology, but it's not the gospel. Like everything has to change, and we are called into being a very different kind of community. And by our own unaware confession, what the Peace USA has been saying for decades, nay, even centuries, is the Peace USA is the most American Christian denomination in the country. We've been saying that about ourselves as as a point of pride. And, um, you know, I think maybe are just getting to a place where there actually is enough parity and genuine relationship where people of color in our community can say, you understand that's not a good thing from where I'm coming from, right? Like to you, that sounds like, oh, I'm the elite. To me, it sounds like, yeah, America decimated my ancestors. And, you know, so I think like this is a super uncomfortable conversation to have, but a really healthy and holy one. And um, I, and I think it was also sort of in the chat of the Zoom call as somebody was calling up prior precedent that like, oh, the General Assembly did, I don't know if they said that the General Assembly in years past did acknowledge that slavery was sinful or maybe even apologized for slavery, but specifically in the overture said, but since slavery was legal at the time, those Presbyterians who held slaves were not sinners. And I'm like, friends, like, this is just ridiculously bad theology right and and you know when jesus says a little child should lead them like this is where you need to center like how how hard do you have to work to obscure the meaning of the gospel to come up with some sort of rationale that says it was not a sin to enslave someone to rape them to sell their children to murder them if if that's not a sin in your theological framework, then I don't worship your God, right? So I get that it was legal, 
But if you're saying that the grace, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't powerful enough to bring truth in an unjust government system, then you're also making another confession about what you really worship. So like this is hard, but it is necessary work. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Why do you think it's so difficult for white people, white Christians especially, to say, I'm sorry for the institution of slavery. I'm sorry for the lasting effects. And I'm sorry for the way I have benefited. Yeah, I think because we live in a culture that I mean, I know this is going to sound like jargon to some people and you just have to sort of allow yourself to sit with it, to recognize that it's said frequently because it's true. Like we live in a culture that centers whiteness all the time. Mm. And so a, I see myself as an individual, not as part of the white community and b, like every institution that I have ever had anything to do with in my life has been built by white people for white people and sort of the Mm -hmm. ideal participant has always consciously and unconsciously been portrayed as a white person. So to have to all of a sudden like face the reality that white people are not just the people who created the, you know, created the government that set us free and white people are not just the people who started the hospital systems and white people are not like that. There's this equal not, I mean, there's another legacy and it is perhaps not simply equal to all the good things that we're taught to believe about ourselves, but actually is of a magnitude more harmful, like that the harm that we as a people have caused is actually greater by a huge factor than any good that we have done. Like that is just, I mean, before you can even get to guilt, that just the cognitive dissonance is so overwhelming Um, because my whole life what I've been taught is that white people are good and you have to go out of your way to get in proximity with people who will tell you a different story and those people have to feel safe enough to want to tell you that story that even as a white little girl I unconsciously carried so much power in my body that for people of color to tell me the truth, had it made me uncomfortable, could have caused them real harm. So, you know, I think that's that's what's hard. Like somebody said, you know, it's hard to convince a, a man of a truth if his job depends, uh, depends on him not knowing it. I can't remember who said that. But, I mean, it's the same thing. Like my whole life and sense of self are founded in the way I was taught to see the world and the way I was taught to see the world was not necessarily that white people were better. I mean, I will say I was a child of the seventies. So I grew up roller skating to free to be you and me in the basement and seeing like Sesame street, which was like the idealized Mm -hmm. diverse Mm -hmm. community. So like I not consciously was not consciously given the idea that white people were better, but I was definitely consciously given the idea that white people were good. And so, and you used the term centered. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Centered. Wow. And that, that um, and this, this may sound like an aside, but I'm going to get back to what we're talking about. It reminds me of, of the, I don't know if you saw it. Well, I don't think you watched the Super Bowl, but it's the, the, the Google Pixel 6 cell phone commercial 
during the Super Bowl, I was literally, I was walking back to the sofa with my plate full of snacks, and this commercial stopped me right in front of the television because the commercial began with the picture of a young black woman. Clearly, the picture is from like the 70s. And then you hear this voice that says, it's a, it's a still picture. You hear this voice that said something like, I was always conscious about getting my picture taken because they always came out too dark. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to the next picture of a young man, clearly high school. And the voice, this time a male voice, says something like, Every single one of my school pictures came out wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they begin to talk about this new cell phone, the Google Pixel 6, with a new camera. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I'm I'm just mesmerized by the commercial. Because um, since we've been in this whole COVID thing and had to put up YouTube videos, one of the things that I have wrestled with is when I go into my bathroom, for example, and I look in the mirror, I can see myself. Mm -hmm. Not bad. I like my melanin. But when I see myself on video, it just doesn't look like me. Mm -hmm. It's always too dark or too, uh, uh, my skin looks shiny. Mm -hmm. And um, I started to investigate that. And I don't know if if you've ever heard of a Shirley card. Shirley cards were invented around uh, the 30s when they started to have color film. And a Shirley card was um, a picture of a white woman, usually wearing something very colorful, and it helped to determine the norm Mm -hmm. for color Mm -hmm. pictures, right? Because light has different temperatures. Sometimes it's warm, Mm -hmm. reddish yellow. Sometimes it's cool, bluish gray. And so these Shirley cards help to uh, set the accuracy, quote-unquote, of mm-hmm. color cameras. And throughout the decades, there were different Shirley cards, but they were always white, white women, mm-hmm. even through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you, for example, go onto YouTube and you're watching about, uh, you're watching camera tutorials, they will say of some cameras, this will give you the best-looking skin tones. They're not talking to black people. What they mean is that that particular camera will help white people, which this blows my mind, not look white. I did not know white people didn't want to look white on film uh, or on camera, but white people apparently want to look a bit tan and rosy. Mm -hmm. And so these cameras kind of add this Mm -hmm. warmth to Mm -hmm. color, but it's terrible for black skin. Mm And centering white people in just something like cameras causes us, we, now we, we have to navigate all the different right. camera settings. We buy, like, I do, buy a special filter to take down right. some of the saturation and the contrast. If you were to say to the average white person, like, this camera, is, it's all about you. It centers mm-hmm. you. It, that, I think it's just hard for right. people to get their minds around right. a world that is centered around them and right. that it costs other people something. You may not feel the benefit, 
but you do benefit. And I can see why a white person would want to shield themselves from right, that reality. Because the reality is it's just like you, you don't, you have grown up in a world where there's things that are just neutral, right? Like you've grown up in a world where you don't even think of yourself as white. You think of yourself as a person. Yes. And that, and so I think it's just a whole huge mind shift that has to happen. And that's why, and you know, it's the, painful. It's a it's painful, deeply shift. painful because there's a lot of things that you love about your identity and about your country. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm learning things that are just, objectively not lovable and not admirable. So like a book like Ibram X. Kendi stamped from the beginning and you start realizing like, oh my gosh, when I was studying biology in college and I learned about Linnaeus and he's just the father of classification and you think like there's just nothing more like it's science, right? So it's like objective facts, testing, scientific method. And you learn about Linnaeus and like, this is just a way that we classify and show the interrelatedness of all of the species. And they don't tell you that Linnaeus had a classification for different humans, right? Like that has been edited out of what you learn in the late nineties in your undergraduate biology degree at a private liberal arts college. They don't, but Later on, when you do learn, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. he thought that there were subspecies of humans and here's what they are. And, and then you're like, okay, well, so if this guy who is the foundational figure of what is presented as a hard objective science had that kind of prejudice and opinion that allowed, that literally influenced the way that he sees the world, then you just have this huge of like, okay, well, what is objectively true? And I understand that white people are like, oh my gosh, we're woke culture. It's going too far. I'm like, no, but every single thing that we have ever encountered has been created with our comfort level in mind. And so it's just, it's really hard. And we're not even getting to the part of dealing then with like, well, what's my role in this? Mm -hmm. And what does my response need to be? And what's my level of culpability, right? Like we're just getting to the, we're just still grappling at the level of like, I don't know what truth is. Right. I don't know what objective reality is. Um, and so that, you know, it's, it is so hard. Now, what I think is just so deeply heartbreakingly ironic is people who follow Jesus Christ, we ought to have a secret weapon, right? And that is that the gospel and scripture in general has been so crystal clear in its revelation to us, not only about the goodness of God, but just the complexity and fallenness of the human heart. Mm -hmm. And has been so clearly revealing to us the essential paradox that we need to live as people of faith, which is on the one hand, we're created in the image of God. We are chosen. We have infinite worth such that God would send God's son, that God would die on a cross for us, right? Along with the deceptiveness of the human heart, the infidelity of the human heart, the human lust for evil and power and money. And, you know, that humans both individually and collectively have earned God's wrath. And this idea that Jesus showed up to save the world, but for first clearly call everyone, particularly people of faith, first to repentance. And so for it should be white Christians, we should be able to lead the way because for us, 
to learn that the way we see the world is deeply and tragically flawed, the way we see ourselves is deeply and tragically flawed, and that we are called first to repentance, that we're sinners, that should not be new news to us. But because the gospel has been so malformed by empire colonial culture, we have believed that God doesn't care what governments do. God doesn't care what countries do. How in the world we read the Hebrew Bible thinking that God did not care about collective groups of people, I'll never understand, but we did. And we believed that Billy Graham was giving us the only thing we needed to know about the gospel, which is you have an individual personal relationship with Jesus. You were responsible for your sins until you said that prayer. And since you've now said that prayer, God is not mad at you. God will never be mad at you again. And you are actually no longer capable and of you're doing not evil. Guilty of anything. Of anything. Ever. Of you, anything. You are ever. now a good person. And anything that makes you feel like not a good person is a you lie. You must reject it. It's a lie. Yes. Right. And and not only is that true for you, but it's true for your ancestors, right? Like your ancestors went to church, which means, and literally we hear this conversation, that my ancestors could not have sinned because they were church people, right? So I'm just saying like the fact that we can't even collectively sit with the fact that like God can love you and you can love God and you can be blind to sin because, and here's another reason we should have it, a secret weapon because we have an enemy, right? Mm-hmm. And scripture is very clear about that. And our scripture is very clear about like our, our enemies are not flesh and blood, but are these powers and principalities of spiritual weaknesses in high places, like these ideas and um, spirits that possess us mm-hmm. and lead us into demonic behavior. And blind us. And, bl- you know, so this is just all so clearly laid out to us in scripture. And, you know, it's just an amazing um, example of how you know we have the witness of the scribes, right? Like you tithe on the, you know, the rue and the whatever other spice, but you neglect justice and righteousness, right? It's right there, and we had to work so hard not to see it. And I think um, you know, the gospel will get us everywhere we need to go if we let the gospel, if we center the gospel and not our institutions. Yes, and the other side, the flip side of what you're talking about, which I think is exactly right, is that for those of us who are minorities in this system called the PCUSA, again, predominantly white, often um, in most corners uh, affluent, it is very challenging not to be seduced by that not to um it, it's it's it becomes challenging to tell the truth mm-hmm. because on the one hand you want to be accepted you want mm-hmm. to be a part of and when that wealth and privilege starts to flow your way as a black person then you are tempted to silence your own voice or even mm-hmm. to center the comfort of white people. Right. And this institution that we're a part of, and I think this is true, not just for the PCUSA, but just a lot of revered historic institutions in our country, these institutions are proudly self-referential. So like people in the PCUSA will tell you with a straight face that only this office, only this 
in academic institution that these are the people, these are the only people who can accurately interpret scripture for you. And other voices are valid or invalid only to the degree with which they are recognized, acknowledged, and accepted by people in authoritative positions in this institution. So when the institution that you're a part of is a self-referential institution, then it's really hard to even notice when you have a thought that doesn't fit that rubric because the institution is, again, like I'm not an anti-institutionalist. Like we need institutions. I met Jesus in an institutional church. And so I I, I think they have a place, but when there's an institution that says, okay, we, here's, here are the scriptures, here is life in Christian community, here is literally Jesus himself, then you start to feel like that institution, consciously or unconsciously, owns all of those things. And you start to then self-censor, and when you have a thought that doesn't fit the rubric or that won't be, you just go like, okay, well these people know and I don't know. Like, who am I to say my understanding of scripture is more valid than they, than what the people in authority tell me scripture means. And look at, look at all of this academic sort of evidentiary chain of command that set, you know, and so you have to do this other huge, again, like cognitive dissonance look at like, okay, but all of these people who had these authoritative positions of interpreting the scripture throughout all of these years we're deeply involved in these institutions that are objectively evil. So like even going back as far as Calvin and like, Ooh, we all love Calvin, but I mean, and everybody talks about like just what a, um, just what a piercing intellect Calvin had and how he was so like free and fierce and called people out. But you know, there is a clear commandment in Deuteronomy not to charge interest. Like the people of God do not charge interest. God is very clear that if you're going to live as a covenant people, there cannot be a profit to be gained off of the misfortune and misery of your neighbor who's your brother or sister. You can't have interest. You can have businesses. You can be a capitalist. There cannot be interest. Calvin says, oh, no, no, no. We can have interest. Why? Like, Why? Where in all of the other places that Calvin interprets scripture do you see Calvin just objectively disregard a command? Of, I mean, it's because he wanted to play, right? And the empire held sway over the Christian tradition. And I really like the theology of John Yoder, who talks about just like Constantinian. How do you say that? Like Constantinian? I, well, Constantinianism, like basically like the way... Ooh that Christian theology was shaped after the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And John Yoder says, like, look, before Constantine is a Christian, it's really hard to be a Christian. It was like, it costs you everything. Like, it's so hard. hard. It is such a small elite group of people who can be so divested from the world that they can claim Christ as Lord. But after Constantine becomes a Christian, it's really hard not to be a Christian, mm -hmm. right? Now... <laughs> it'll cost you the world it's to your benefit to not be a christian yeah. and so what is how do you continue to live like within these dominant power structures and not again be seduced by proximity to say can i just shave a little bit off the edge here you know it's just it's a it's a function of our limited human brokenness and why jesus was constantly calling people to voluntary poverty and powerlessness mm -hmm. right and we want to say like well well, you know, that was a thing at certain times and seasons, but... So are you saying the primary reason 
white people, white Christians, white Presbyterians resist apologizing for slavery, resist dealing with the legacy of slavery and racism in this country is that it's, at the end of the day, an economic issue. It's just not in their... Um, well, I mean, it's a... It's not it's to a, their benefit. I mean, I am not an economist, but I would say, A, it, it would absolutely be in the economic in interest of most white people to have a more critical gaze on the current hyper-capitalism hyper system that we live in. But I think, you know, my wheelhouse is theology. So I think that most white Christians resist it because of bad theology, because mm. we've been taught taught um, maybe not, you know, maybe we heard a few phrases along the way that said differently, but the culture of our institutions has been, God loves you because you're good. And there are people out there that God wants to love, but they're not good. So if they would come in and be with you, then they would have God's love like you have God's love, and then they would be good too, right? Like we we just do not, we can see clearly, I mean, it's the speck in the beam, right? Like we can see clearly, and up to this day in the culture war, because most of the PCUSA, not all, <laughs> but most of the PCUSA is going to be on the progressive side of the culture war. And to be clear, I'm... I don't believe that Christians are called to fight in the culture war on either side. But I mean, even to this day, progressive white Christians are still taught to see themselves as the good ones. And it's the people out there who are the bad ones. And if everybody would just come in here and be like us, then everything would be fine. Right. So to have to really grapple with the fact that, like, who am I if I'm not a good person? Well, first of all, you're human. <laughs> and second of all, then you are now ready to have Christ be the ground of your being, right? And not... Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right. And those who would save their lives will lose it. And those who will try to keep their lives... I mean, you know, this is just... It's all right there in front of our faces. But we've been taught to read the gospel through the lens of, like, white middle-class Americanism. And, and this is the problem, mm -hmm. right? And, like, because Colin and I were talking last night. I can talk about you because you don't listen to the podcast. Because um, we were talking about like Russia invading Ukraine and and saying that, you know, isn't it interesting? Like it's just been such a long time other than the last Winter Olympics when Russia invaded Crimea, which makes me think we should, you know, stop having Winter Olympics, but whatever. <laughs> and he was saying like, well, when is the last time that a country has just like invaded another country? And, and then after a while, we're like, gosh, we're such Americans like Afghanistan, that was us. Iraq, like, I mean, we're the country, like we do this. But when we see Russia do it, we're like, what is the matter with those guys? How could they possibly? So I just think we have scripture. The revelation of scripture is not our primary text. Mm. And again, I'm not mad. I'm not mad at anybody, but I'm just saying like, it's one thing to be a person who comes to the local church to say, show me who Jesus is and teach me how to read scripture. It's another thing to be the leader in that local church and to have the great gift of an extended period set aside to learn and be formed in those scriptures and to still remain willfully blind. Because again, like the scripture, no matter how hard you try, you, you cannot take the revelation out of scripture. Um, so it, it will get us where we need to go. I mean, there's a reason our, our friend Cedric um, Lundy was preaching a few weeks ago and he was holding up a copy of the, and this is what it's called, the slave Bible, mm -hmm. like the Bible that was printed specifically for enslaved 
peoples in this country. And like you in the, the table of contents, there's just like it goes through and says like, OK, the book of Genesis has 50 co- chapters. But in the slave Bible, there's four. Mm. Like the whole book of Exodus is gone, mm. right? Because the Bible is this revelatory liberation text and you just can't give it to people and expect them not to begin to question empire theology because it'll it'll get you there. But anyway, we haven't even gotten to the actual thing that we're talking about, which we had this overture. <laughs> this is all set up. We lucky mentioned people. the overture. We mentioned it. So this overture is going to be about whether or not we will co-sign on this um, document, which essentially takes responsibility for the ways that the Presbyterian Church was founded, intertwined with chattel slavery, and has grown up, you know, with all of the resources and key figures who who did not resist the system, but actually used um, scripture to prop it up and give it legitimacy and even call it God ordained. And, and the document sort of says, we, we repent of this and we apologize for this. And we want to do serious work at looking at where the fruit of this is in our culture to root out the bad fruit. And how do we make amends, right? How, how do we look at our life together and say it never, we've never acknowledged it. And so it didn't just magically disappear. Right. Um, and, it is not to say that there can't be real reconciliation and healing in the body of Christ, because there can be. Absolutely. But repentance and acknowledging that we've been blind to this and we need Jesus to help us see, right? And we have done this, for example, when it comes to Native Americans. Mm-hmm. I, I live in a town called Indian Trail. Like, and every time I think think about the name of our town, where I live, I, whenever I'm addressing an envelope and I write the name of the town, I am reminded that I am living on land where there were already people who were forced violently off of their land. And that that was sin. Mm-hmm. And was I there? Did I drive those people off? Did anyone who looked like me drive them off? Probably not. But I am currently benefiting from that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you know, the, every mid-council meeting right now mm-hmm. in the whole denomination starts with what we call a land acknowledgement. So just a moment to say, hey, we're having this meeting on land that used to belong to um, the Catawba tribe or... Um, Waxaw, mm-hmm. you know, and and just the space of saying like we understand that deep tragedy is just beneath the surface of what we're doing. And so to your point, like why why are we willing to say there's culpability and we regret this, but also we just don't even we we can't even say the words about the ways. Which is why I asked you the question about you know kind of what's at stake for white people here because it seems as if as a denomination. We're very eager to apologize for uh, for atrocities uh, committed against Native Americans, and rightfully so. We should have done that. When it comes to African Americans, there is there's real resistance uh, and uh, and a kind of a kind of fear. Yeah, and I think some of it has to do, I think, with proximity. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is easy 
safer to apologize for atrocities perpetrated against Native Americans when tomorrow morning you are not going to walk out of your house and see someone who identifies as Native American or who visibly, you know, you can just tell that this is their ethnic heritage. So it's an abstract thing, whereas, especially in a presbytery like Charlotte, if you are apologizing for chattel slavery, then you are in a relationship and sitting next to and doing, you know, church work with people who were on the other side of that well, legacy. And the church around the corner has as its membership people who are the direct descendants of the people in your congregation that enslaved them. Correct. And so I just think like that Same idea. Same last names. Correct. I mean, and, and so you just can't say like, well, that's a distant past and there's no one around anymore to make amends to like literally right around the corner. And then you have to do the deeper uncomfortable question. And we were saying this before of, of saying like, look, we have these congregations that we value and honor verbally all the time as being historically black congregations and aren't we so fortunate and rich as a presbytery to have more historically black congregations than any other presbytery in the country and yes and that is true and can we look at the relative amount of institutional security in those congregations versus the historically white congregations there's no comparison like there's so much less institutional security in the historically black congregations right their buildings are smaller they are older they are they are you know just falling into disrepair because there's just not as much economic resources and you can not look at it but once you look at it and acknowledge it and go huh well, what do we think the difference is? Why are the white churches so much more prosperous and have so much more institutional stability? Do you think it's because the white Christians are more faithful? They do you think it's because pastors. the white Christians um, care more about Jesus mm. than the black Christians? Do you think it's because the white Christians just were faithful and so God just blessed them in that way? And like, is that what you think? Because I don't think that once you acknowledge the legacy of slavery, in not only a denomination, but in our presbytery, then you have to start asking questions about like, well, which churches in our presbytery have endowments? And where did the wealth of the families that gave this money, which prior to four has been able to see, it's an act of philanthropy. Mm. But if we're going to then start saying like, okay, well, did these families generate their wealth by enslaving other human beings? And then all of a sudden their wealth is no longer a sign of like, American industriousness, pull yourself by the bootstraps along revered. No, like that's blood money. And what does it mean that some of our churches can gather every Sunday in st tall steeple churches made of stone because they were built by people who enslaved other people. And then the descendants of those people who in, in those enslavers are around the corner worshiping in a church that, you know, cannot afford to consistently heat their building and what are you going to do about that i mean it just makes things uncomfortable you are getting dangerous so we had this conversation about whether or not we were going to co-sign on this overture which honestly and we had talked about it a little bit before it happened and honestly i thought i just thought it was an easy vote i, I just didn't think it would I just think they didn't think there would be any controversy. I didn't either. Right. Because yeah. one of the things that we like to do as a denomination is talk about how progressive we are, mm -hmm. right? To sort of differentiate ourselves that like we are not, 
you know, like evangelical non-denominational churches that support XYZ policy of, mm-hmm. you know. Wh- but so, MAGA was in the house. Well, right. I mean, I thought, and I, I, my big concern was this is going to be like a congratulatory conversation about how woke and progressive we are. And so I had prepared remarks, like really trying to sort of say, hey, let's not, let's not think this is so much mm-hmm. because it's words. Yeah. And this let's is not pat ourselves on the back. Right. And, because yeah. this is the, the floor, not the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So we both just thought like, okay, like I'm for it, but I, I just don't want us to think that by doing this, we've really done something. This is not a matter of pride. Correct. I mean, like we need to just be really humble and, mm-hmm. and, and honestly sad um, in the way that we talk about this. And so, but then it comes to the time to have the conversation and there's actually, uh, so I should say the actual ending vote was 70% yes, roughly to 30% no. Correct. But there was a significant and vocal presence um, speaking out against it. And the way it's structured is you do a, a person who's speaking in for the motion and then a person who's speaking against so that even if there's unequal representation in the sides before you take the vote, like both sides get equal energy and attention. And I ended up by a fluke speaking first, which I wish that I hadn't because um, I would have said different things. But, um, and it's interesting because we had really strong reactions to the conversation, but different Mm -hmm. reactions. So I don't know, you want me do you want to talk about your reaction first or my reaction first? Oh, man. So my reaction was strong. Oh, man. I, I don't even know how to even begin to talk about this. talk about mine first? Yes. <laughs> so I had a really strong reaction to there were um, – so the, the majority of the people who spoke against this were white people. And I just was filled with – shame and pain (laughs) because I felt like, you know, the joke for me was if you had bingo cards of things white people say when they're trying to prove they're not racist, like you, you could have had a blackout. Um, because I mean, people were saying, well, I'm not racist. People were saying nobody in my family owns slaves. People were saying like, this was a long time ago. We need to focus on problems that are happening right now and then started talking about like racism isn't happening right now. well they were saying but this is what was so interesting is they were saying and i will say by the way this was not a private meeting this was not a closed meeting correct there is zero confidence that we are betraying the meeting still exists on youtube you can go and watch every single thing so everyone who said anything said it publicly and so i mean not that the tens of people who listen to this podcast will really (laughs) care but like we are not speaking out of turn and and you know there was one woman who who really was the hardest for me to listen to because she was talking about how she was an educator, so that did not make me feel good, and about how she was didn't have I don't know if she literally said I didn't have a racist bone in my body, but you know how she you know didn't see color. I think she did say that, and was talking about how we there was a problem in the black community now, but it wasn't slavery. It was absent fathers, and it was a lack of values, and it was. You know, so basically just saying like, uh, not basically, she was saying that there is only disparity between white communities and black communities now because black people don't love their children as much or as well 
as white families do. And black people don't care about education. And now she, to be clear, she did not use the words black and white, but she was making this argument in the context of a conversation about whether slavery was A, a sin, and B, still a factor in disparities of equity and access in our culture today. And she said, no, that's not a factor. The thing that's a factor is absent fathers and bad values. And so then the connection is, if there are kids or families that do not, that are living in poverty or who have trouble accessing justice or opportunities, it's because the men are out fathering children. I mean, it was basically the pound cake speech, right, mm -hmm. that she was giving. Um, there was another woman who said she didn't want to apologize for slavery because her ancestors didn't own slaves because she was only a second generation American and her family immigrated from a Slavic country, which again, I just want to say friend, like it you still is, benefit. it's the you legacy of white supremacy that you were allowed into this country when people who were trying to emigrate from other parts of the worlds that were not deemed white were not let in. And we can still see that there are people sitting on the border of this country today yeah. trying to find safety and freedom here who are not being let in because they're not white. So, I mean, to just this country and all of its institutions were created by people with power and people with power when this country were being created were either enslavers or people who protected the interests of those who were enslavers. So like, that's just, that's who was in power. And so all of our institutions were created by people who bought into that kind of thinking. Now that doesn't mean that everything they said and thought was garbage. It doesn't mean that they're worthless, but it does mean that that stain of what is America's original sin continues to be present in sometimes ways that are invisible to white people. And we need to be open to correction and enlightenment. We need to be able to acknowledge that we're blind to some of these things because they benefit us mm -hmm. and to be willing to sit in discomfort and actually repent, like lament and repent so that we can find healing. But I think for me, it was just so hard to hear. I mean, there was one colleague who said, I'm not racist. And everybody in this conversation, you're not racist. You know, you're not racist. And I would say, look, that's actually not true. Speaking of myself, I understand that my whole formative essence was influenced by these traditions and institutions that were formed with white supremacist culture. That doesn't mean I'm a garbage person because I'm white. It doesn't make it a sin to be white, but it does mean that I'm susceptible to this and I need to get in proximity to people who have had a different experience of life in this country if I really want to understand how to advocate for people who are historically marginalized and disempowered by these systems. And so I think it's just so unhelpful. Well, and I'm saying one more thing and then I'm going to stop. Like, it's just hard for me also, you know, there are a lot of accusations about like woke culture and like the people, the people who are for this amendment, you know, care about politics and the people who are against it, we just care about Jesus. And I, you know, what's hard for me is this really shallow, um, basic theological understanding of sin. And it's hard to me, for me to just 
grasp that we are a denomination, I don't even like Calvin, but we are a denomination who prides ourselves on reformed theology. And then we have a bunch of people stand up there and say, well, I'm not a sinner and I don't have anything to apologize for. So suddenly sin becomes individualized. Right. Any other time, it's collective. Right. It's, but when it comes to racism, oh, no, that doesn't apply to me. Right. I like, I say I have no sin when it comes to this issue. And you people are like people who have the acronym TULIP tattooed on your bicep, but all of a sudden, the idea of total depravity has no traction with you. Like, I'm sorry. Like, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And the primary way that sin has been manifested in this country is through racism. Like, that... I mean, from my perspective, that is an objective fact. And I'm tired of hearing people say that we have a sin problem and not a skin problem. Our sin problem is manifested in what we do to people based on our perception of the color of their skin. So I just was distressing to me to essentially hear the culture war talking points come out in what should have been a theological conversation. And it would have been an appropriate theological conversation to say, what do we believe about collective sin? What does scripture teach us about can one person be held accountable for the sins of the community? I wonder if there's any precedent. Mm. Is there any precedent in scripture for that? Like what what is, what is our theology of repentance? What is our theology of lament? But none of that enters into the conversation. It's just, well, my ancestors didn't own slaves, so tough nuggets to all the rest of you. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Like that's just a really shallow, that's just bad theology. Yeah, yeah my comments, um, you know, I, I have to acknowledge some things. Um, you know, I, I speak as a person who grew up in suburbia. Uh, like my family was literally the black family in our neighborhood. Uh, my home church is a historically white congregation, very affluent. And I understand both, well, it is both my testimony and my own confession of sin, that proximity to white privilege and white wealth is seductive. And it is, it's challenging when you're in a meeting, like our Presbytery meeting, and you have um, anyone of color speak in a way that centers white people's comfort. It just makes it so hard. <laughs> it, it has to just harden the position of white people who do not want to look at the reality, the history of racism in this country. And I think that's, I, I left that meeting disappointed that um, there was, there was not a clear unity um, when it comes to uh, black church leaders and this amendment. Well, and because I, 
I will say um, one of the things, and this so mirrored conversations that's happening in school boards about like, hey, we cannot teach we need to teach about slavery in a way that makes all children comfortable. But what that means is we need to teach about, we need to lie about slavery, right? So we need to say it wasn't that bad so that white and black children don't feel uncomfortable, right? And so one of the themes that came up in the conversation between people who were against this amendment or overture, and it was primarily by white people, but there was one black pastor who agreed and they essentially said, we shouldn't have to apologize because to apologize and acknowledge that slavery was evil is to say that all white people are bad racists. And so a lot of people were saying, I don't want to apologize um, because not all white people are bad racists. And and the the problem is that's so, not so. what the overture says. It does not say that. It doesn't speculate about the moral character or essentially the ontological worth of white people. Correct. What it says is this institution was evil and it was a corrupting influence in our culture and we need to repent of it. We need to lament it. And then we need to look and root out the ways that sin is still bearing fruit in our community, right? It does not say that all white people are racist. It does not say that all white people are evil. So to pull this red herring move and say, I can't vote for this because I'm not voting. I don't agree that all white people are racist. I mean, whatever. That's not what it says. Like, even if I did agree with that statement, well, it's not what it says. And we just don't have a clear understanding of what we mean when we say white people are racist. We are not saying that you see a black person and you just hate them because of the color of their mm -hmm. skin. And we're not saying that white people— There are some people who are like that. Right. But primarily what we're saying— is that you benefit from a system, whether you know it or realize it or not, you benefit from that system. And whether you know it or not, you prop it up and you keep it going. And, and repentance means seeing that and adjusting your life in such a way that that system has less and less power. And I think like white people will say, no, I don't. I know my heart. I don't prop up that system. Yeah. And what I need to say to white people is, okay, I get that that's your experience of the world. Do you listen to the voices of any people of color in a context where it would be safe for them to tell you what their experience of the world is? Because to say, you know, and Ellie Wiesel said, like, to, to take a position of neutrality in a system of injustice is to take the side of the oppressor. So basically, if you say, I'm trying to think of a, an example in the animal kingdom. If you say, like, I, I don't know, like, lions aren't racist against gazelles. All the lions say they're not. I mean, sure. But 100% of gazelles would say, this system is not it's not set up for me, right? Like, so just because something is natural and just because something is legal and just because something is familiar and not painful to you, you have to at least be willing to get curious about the fact that if somebody else has a radically different experience of the world than I do, am I just going to dismiss their experience out of hand? Because if I am, then my friend, you're getting very dangerously close to a functional theology of, 
my experience and my life has more value and worth than theirs. So if you don't believe that, then you have to get your be willing to get yourself in a place where you someone can be teachable. Could, someone would actually tell you the truth, even if it makes you uncomfortable. So I get that there are a lot of white people who all in all sincerity are like, I don't have prejudice in my heart against black people. I wish I had more black friends. I wish my daughter dated a black man. I, w- That's I mean, a lie. like. I, I'm just saying, like, I think people really sincerely want those things, but what they don't recognize is, okay, but have you moved to a neighborhood mm-hmm. where your property taxes resource a school so that your child gets a huge advantage when it comes time to apply for colleges, and then somebody down the street um, has sends their kid to the local public school that has much less resources because of their property taxes, and then your kid earns a spot at Chapel Hill that their could, kid didn't earn, and yet you don't want to look at the fact that financing our public schools by property taxes just bakes in wealth inequity yeah. into the system. Or you don't want to look at the fact that, like, well, when my kid gets caught with marijuana, they get probation and it gets expunged from their record. But when a black kid gets caught with marijuana and then gets charged with resisting arrest, or like when a black kid gets charged with resisting arrest and they go straight to jail, but when my kid is at a fraternity party and gets drunk and resists arrest, the record gets expunged. Like these are differences in how the systems work that A, you don't have to know that, right? Like you can live your whole life in your white bubble and literally believe that the system, that there's liberty and justice that for everything all. everything is fair. And you will never know that unless you are willing to listen to voices that tell you a truth that deeply disturbs that. But if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to hear it because you have the privilege to live in a place where people will tell you everything is fine and anybody who is suffering is choosing to suffer because they don't work as hard as you do because their family doesn't value you education in the way that your family does like there is a local charter school in the city right now and it makes me so mad and they talk about how their whole system is geared their whole charter school system is geared to serve black children from title one schools and they are going to break the curse of generational poverty by fostering academic excellence and a work ethic what are you saying? Mm-hmm. You're saying that black people are poorer than white people because white people care about education more and they work harder. Ma'am, if you want to break the curse of generational poverty, then why don't you talk about reparations? Mm. Okay? I mean, I'm just saying like it it's more comfortable to believe that everything is the way it's supposed to be and everything is fair and everybody gets what they deserve. And you can think that if you want to, but I'll tell you what doesn't think that, and that's the Bible. Yeah. So, okay, I'm just like going to take a few breaths <laughs> to calm down now. But anyway, it was a very exciting Presbytery meeting, and it was a very, I don't know. I mean, and we were saying before we started recording that it was very uncomfortable. It was very discouraging. But necessary, good, holy. Right. It is advancing a kingdom agenda. Well, and you just can't heal Mm -hmm. when you don't recognize there's a disease. And so I think the reality is what was visible at that presbytery meeting is that there is a sincere just gulf of understanding within our community and and until that is visible we can't think about how we want to address it and i would say like for me 
I think that we need to be able to gather together and have theological conversations about what is, you know, what is sin? What does, who repents and who doesn't? And like, what does reconciliation look like? Like, let's talk about what is grace. Does grace mean that you can do whatever you want to people and then say sorry and it's cool and it's good now? I mean, is that what we think grace is? And if we can have some of these theological conversations, we can let who we know Jesus is influence how we see the world instead of letting our self-interest influence who we see Jesus is and how we present Jesus to the world. And so I just think we need to have more theology talks in Presbyterian. That's what I think. Well, and at the end of the day, someone could read the overture and walk away and think, well, it's just, it's just an apology. And I've been thinking about these kinds of gestures because mm-hmm. this is not, again, it's not the first. And, um, you know, Sunday, again, I watched the Super Bowl and I noticed that, um, you know, there were people of color singing national songs and uh, in the end zone there was spray painted um, the words end racism. And my knee-jerk response was, kind of an eye roll this is just a it's it's a meaningless gesture and I sat with that for a while I thought you know what it, it could be a meaningless gesture if you just do this thing and nothing nothing else but a sustained gesture or sustained gestures create habits habits can shift culture. So this overture to our denomination's general assembly that is essentially, you know, an apology and says we're going to um, uh, look at how we should respond, how 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 we can um, um, heal this legacy may not seem like much. It may seem like a simple gesture, but I think. It is a gesture in the right direction, and if sustained, can have great impact. And so I just get a sense that not only in the Peace USA, but in the country, something good is stirring. It feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's tense. Our natural impulse is to run away from it um, because we run from pain, run toward pleasure. But if we will lean into this, I think um, a great amount of healing can take place. Yeah, I I think for me, I I was telling you that we, Colin and I were watching, um, I think it's called Everything's Gonna Be All White. And I think it's on Comedy Central and it is sort of American history from a POC POV. And it was really um, uncomfortable to watch as a white person, like really viscerally painful to watch people, to listen to people speak really honestly about their perspective on American history and culture as a, as a, they, I think everyone there was a black person. And, um, but what I, what I think is really important, and, and one of the questions that they asked, and again, like, it doesn't matter what anybody's opinion, it, this is 
this is what people, this is their truth, right? This is their experience as Americans that like, is there a white historical figure that you admire? And they didn't clearly didn't have the questions ahead of time. And so you could see people really engage and like, Oh, that's a good question. Then let me think and not be able to come up with an answer. Like one person said, John Brown, one person said like a current sports coach and said, like, I know this isn't a historical figure, but a current sports person, coach. And I just think the reality is for a long time, we sort of, you know, we, we made a shift in policy, but there was no truth and reconciliation. Like, there was no place to tell the truth out loud and sit with the discomfort and, and do lamentation. And, and we just sort of, you know, pushed it back and ran away and we kept separate and we would show up and do ceremonial things and then move on. There was no place to get proximate to one another's pain. Um, and I think like my hope is because, oh gosh, Carrie, my five-year-old yesterday, Monday, I don't know when it was, I think it was dry. It was coming home from church. And she said, is there going to be racism my whole life? Wow. And I, I mean, and I said what I think is true, which is, I mean, yes. And we, our whole lives can work to love people and to, um, advocate for people and when we see injustice figuring out you know what do we have so that we can be part of um, making justice and and when we learn that we've done something wrong we can be ready to make amends and like we even if there's racism we can still love each other and work against it and um, I think for me it's I think white people have to move past wanting to do something and then be absolved, right? Like mm. we just have to accept that, you know what? There, this is not, this is 400 years of buried, silenced pain. It is not going to be gone in a year or two or even in my lifetime. So that can't be what you're looking for. But what I, but what I do hope is that my children or my grandchildren would get to look back and say, you know, my grandmother did some of the heavy lifting so that, so that it, it is, we've, it's different now. Right. And I, I mean, I will say like unapologetically, like I would like someone to be able to look back from the future and say, yes, this person is a person who sincerely tried to engage and begin you know, the first shovel full fulls out of the mountain, you know, and just because in the present, you're just not going to get a cookie for this. It's you're just not. And you you can't be doing it and trying to say like, okay, I, I, if I do this for a certain amount of time, then I'll earn some sort of absolved honored status like no, but the work itself has value. And it's not about whether or not you get to be crowned in laurel, right? You, you just don't need that. What I, what I think is telling the truth matters. What I think is listening and validating pain matters. What I think is naming injustice matters and working for justice matters and saying, yes, like I am a sinner in the hand of a loving God and I believe um, that God is about the work of reconciliation. So that's not a question for me. This will be done. And so you can just be proud to get in line and do your really small part and know that like, yeah, I'm not innocent and I never will be, but that doesn't mean that I can't 
try to follow the Lord in doing this deep work of reconciliation. Um, and so. what we need to name and clearly say, and, and I think you've, you've said this, but not in these exact words, um, we need to remember that this is spiritual work. Yes. It is spiritual work. It's not about a particular political point of view, um, though all things are spiritual, including politics. So politics comes into it at some point. But this is primarily spiritual work. If you read the New Testament, when you get into the book of Acts, that is that book of the history of the early church, one of the first things you see is that there's a tension, an ethnic tension, mm -hmm. between Christians with a Jewish background and Christians with a Gentile or Greek background, and they're trying to figure out how they can live and be family together and reconcile some real differences, and it was work, and we have this work before us, and I, I think the Lord is in it. I think the Lord is calling us to it, and it is to, well, it is, it is unfaithful for us to pretend that this isn't the work mm -hmm. um, of our time. Yeah, and I, I just think that part of then the next level step of doing this work in the power of the Spirit and not, not in the ways of the world which i well and it goes back to what you were saying about expectations you can't expect a cookie for this no if this is about faithfulness then you do the hard work you sow the seeds you do the labor and at the end of the day you say i've, I've only done <laughs> what jesus the king has called me to do right and i and i think part of the other thing for me is just being really aware of how you see people who are standing on the other side from you. Correct. And just Correct. really not falling into the trap, like yes. avoiding the temptation of believing that you are some sort of somehow ontologically different than yes. they are, that they are somehow worse and you are somehow better, that the people who voted against that amendment are not my enemy. Correct. They, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And to the extent that I have any truth at all, it's because God has been so gracious to reveal that to me. And my job is not to take that truth and fashion it into a weapon to harm or denigrate my, you know, and so like when I was listening to that, what I was really praying was like, God, that's my brother. And I just pray that your will will be done in his life as it is in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. God, I just pray that you will bring him deeper into the full understanding of your holy truth. And I pray that same prayer for myself, right? Like yeah. I, we are on the same side and our enemy is not the person <laughs> Correct. who is on the other side of this issue. Our enemy is the enemy of our souls who, you know, who, who seeks to divide us from Jesus and from one another. And I, so I think that is so important is that I can say really clearly, like, I think what you're saying is wrong. And I think that it is um, harmful. And I think that it is seductive and dangerous and idolatrous, but you are a beloved child of God mm -hmm. and you are, created in the image of the holy and you are an image bearer and you have incalculable worth. And I don't have to agree with what you're saying to acknowledge your 
ontological worth. And that is what I think is so problematic a lot is we think like, well, if you, you, to love me, you have to approve of me. Correct. Yes. I don't have to approve of what you're doing mm-hmm. to walk in love towards you. And honestly, like the people who love me the most are the people who come to me and say, risk the relationship to say, Kate, what you are doing right now is harmful and it is in, it is counter to who I believe that you sincerely and authentically want to be. And so, I, I mean, I don't have the kind of relational equity that I could do that with any of those people. And I think we were saying that on the walk. Like, mm-hmm. But I also think like to talk about the ideas and say like, no, I, theologically, I really disagree with this. And that's not, I'm not disparaging them as humans. Correct. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying this is what the Lord has shown me and it is because I'm engaging in this as spiritual work that I'm going to say, like, we're going to talk about these ideas because nobody's nobody's garbage and nobody's worthiness is at stake. Yeah. But the kingdom of God, the, the church rather, not the kingdom of God, but the church's um, embodiment of the kingdom of God is at stake and the church's witness to a watching world is at stake. And the ability of people to see and know and be attracted to the beauty of the gospel is at stake. Yeah. One of the reasons, one of the reasons, the reason I have hope and the reason I do not completely and thoroughly lose my mind in this racist system is that I have a deep conviction that in the fullness of time, the kingdom will be made fully manifest, and these um, these things will be completely healed in the shalom of God. And our work now is to, as much as we can, live into that reality. Like, mm-hmm. I am convinced that's coming, and I know a lot of Christians believe, oh, when we get to heaven, there won't be any racism, blah, 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 blah. But when I hear people say that kind of thing, it often sounds like they're saying, therefore, we, really, okay don't have to, we, we right. really don't have to do anything about it now. We'll just wait for God to fix it. And my understanding of, of, of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus, I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and I am made a citizen of the kingdom right. now. Right now. And so I am called to live as a kingdom citizen even in this present age. And therefore... I'm working as an anti-racist knowing that I don't have the strength to fix it all. Like you said, it won't be solved in my lifetime. And yet, the deep conviction also that the the kingdom will be made fully manifest. Jesus will come. Jesus will, um, in the fullness of time, uh, bring the great shalom of God. And so it's a both and. Yeah, and I think the problem with saying like, well there's always going to be racism here, but there won't be in the kingdom of God is you're, you're essentially saying I'm okay with other people suffering in this era. And you, you can choose to take on your own suffering, but you cannot choose to be indifferent to the suffering of your brother, your sister, your friend, you can't. So what you're essentially saying is that these people who are suffering are simply just objects and I'm fine. Well, I'm still a little salty that, the Me Too movement had to come out of Hollywood and not the church. Well, all it, of it. Yeah. yeah. That it had that that we were not the first to say no more. Right. And so here is an opportunity for the church to 
claim anti-racism as a kingdom value. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking, I, we were preaching on Exodus 3 last week, and I, I, I didn't have time to really deal with it, but I put in the revelation of God's name. Um, and, you know, one of the translations, I think we often say it's, you know, I will be, I am who I am, or I am, or I will be who I will be. But one of them is, I will cause to be what I will cause to be, which I think it's just been really resonating with me all all weekend. And during that conversation, I'd already studied this text. It's just this idea of like, what gives me hope is not, I mean, it's not anything that any human can do, but what gives me actual hope and strength and just yeah, joy is that idea that God's name is I will cause to be what I will cause to be. And like reading those prophecies about, you know, they shall neither harm nor destroy in all God's holy mountain and beating swords into plowshares and, you know, the lion and the lamb laying down together and just this hearts of stone being replaced by living flesh and just, I mean, that every tear being dried like that. I don't think that we can pull that off, but uh, at all. I am not optimistic at all about humans at all. But I, God has is clear that the end of the story is just so much better than our imaginations can even begin to hope for. And that that is dependent not on us getting our ish together, mm-hmm. but on God. And so I have hope in the Lord, not in our shenanigans on either side, which I I think then helps us have the kind of humility to say, you know, whatever my feeble part is, is not really all that different than my brother or my sister, who I think is so, you know, in such a different place than I'm like, right. we're, we're really feebly involved in this, but the Lord is doing something that can't be stopped. And so we, however, can and should be stopped. <laughs> we did not, we, we were going to talk about multiple things and we only, we only talked about the one thing. Don't label this the we talk about the presbytery because no one will. <laughs> hey, uh, if you are still listening, thanks a lot. <laughs> we think Thank you're great. You. Uh, if you want to find out more about what is happening, what God is doing at uh, Derrida Presbyterian Church, Woo-hoo. you can go to their website, which is d e r i t a p r e s dot org. You can check out Yolando's messages on the Dorita Prez podcast, which is on the Podbean website, and you can go to their YouTube channel and see worship. Um, so, so do all of those things. Get some good theology. And if you want to know more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or, you know, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever. Wherever. We're ubiquitous. And you can um, check out videos um, of our uh, on our YouTube channel, the Grove Church YouTube channel. You can worship with Yolando in person at 1030 in their sanctuary. And you can worship at the Grove in person or online at 10. And we stream to our Facebook page. So, so many ways to be part of our life. And um, thanks for listening. We will talk about other things next week. <laughs>